Welcome to the number one show and the source of truth for all things medtech. Here, we reveal the secrets and stories behind the investments, science, and commercialization of the medtech industry. Every week, we'll take you on a wild ride with the biggest names in the game, from entrepreneurs and investors who are shaking up the market, to healthcare providers who are revolutionizing the way we think and practice medicine. So hold on tight and get ready for a journey like no other. This is the State of MedTech. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. So this one is our first regulatory episode. And the reason why is because regulatory is probably, as much as I hate to admit it, one of the most important things when it comes to a med tech company. Because technically, if you don't get the regulatory part down, um, you're not going to go to market and you are going to go bust. So for that, I want to invite my very good friend, Karandeep Singh Badwal, who's the CEO and founder of QRA Medical uh, Karandeep is a fantastic uh, regulatory consultant and advisor, both on the quality and regulatory side. And so, you know, he's somebody that I've recommended to so many different medtech startups and CEOs to talk to and also to get, you know, help from. And so in this episode, we kind of talk about some new changes in terms of the regulatory landscape in Europe, things that I think a lot of medtech CEOs and founders need to understand. But also, for a little bit of fun, we cover, that's right, the FDA clearance of Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, which is really interesting. It's a brain-computer interface company. And so that was really big and a uh, hot topic, so we made sure to cover it. So in this episode, you'll kind of dive into that, and uh, I'm kind of hoping to have current deep as our regulatory and quality correspondent and just a side note i know a lot of people i've met a lot of people i don't say this this is by no way hyperbole current deep is probably the like most interesting man in the world and i don't want to get into details but just like he is literally straight out of a James Bond movie. Uh, just on the surface, just a co- couple things that are super interesting about him. So, you know, Seek lives in, lives in England. He has this uh, fantastic uh, British accent, dresses to the nines, drives fast luxury European supercars, uh, goes, sh- goes, goes shooting, um, and that's just barely scratching the surface. So, like, on another episode, I got to have him back just to kind of talk 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 shop talk life and and everything but somebody who i'm very uh, deeply grateful to have a friendship with and that being said before we jump dive dive into it for many of you you are in the med tech industry uh you're in the summertime this is a great time to you know spend upgrading your linkedin profile let's face it linkedin is the new uh, name of the game microsoft owns it it's not going anywhere and so whether you're using linkedin to sell or perhaps uh, position yourself for career advancement it's super important to have it buttoned up. That LinkedIn profile is a landing page too. Even Google ranks it very high. So to help you out, go to www.upgrademylinkedin.com. And that's right. That's my little mini course. I've uh, spent many years understanding LinkedIn. I, I probably know it better than a lot of the product managers at LinkedIn. And so go to that uh, website and use code sales podcast, and you'll get my mini course instead of uh you're going to get it for 98 bucks. So it's a great, great buy. You're going to love that course. You can get through it in a weekend, learn some 
basics on the foundation of not only LinkedIn, but persuasion and psychology, big part of it. I think you'll love it. I put a lot of effort into it. So go to www.upgrademylinkedin.com, use code salespodcast, and get that discount. Now, let's get on to the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to our first, I guess you can call this an inaugural episode um, when it comes to sort of like updates on the regulatory and quality market. I have my good friend, uh, somebody who I respect a lot, Karandeep Singh Badwal on. Karandeep, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you, Omar. It's a pleasure to see you again, whether it be virtually yeah. or in person. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So Karan Deep is actually one of my old friends from LinkedIn. You know, uh, he puts out fantastic content uh, just on, you know, topics around like regulatory and quality, things that you should learn a lot, in my opinion, especially if you have an interest to go more on the marketing leadership side, like following Karan Deep and understanding like what these updates mean, because I'll say this, at least for the sales and marketing people who are listening, one of the most important areas of investment for an early stage startup is who runs regulatory and the regulatory pathway. Because if you don't get that right, you have no, you don't have a company anymore. So it's a super important thing. And I think it's really, especially for those who are interested in the CEO track, it's a feather in the cap. But before we kind of get into some, you know, general updates on that side, let's talk about like sort of the big news that broke last week, which was Neuralink getting FDA approval. I know that they struggled a lot with that. What are your thoughts on that? What should we kind of take away from those that news? In my view, it's fantastic. The fact that something like Neuralink, you know, it's, it's new technology and the fact that it's getting, you know, FDA approved when the FDA is recognizing this is going to open the floodgates for new technologies that have something similar. Because the idea with the FDA is when something, a new product comes out, right? The 510k pathway, if there's something that's gone down that pathway that's completely new, it's going to open the floodgates for similar products to come out there. So I think it's absolutely fantastic that Neuralink is coming out and the FDA is recognizing it. So It'll be interesting to see what other products are going to be coming out to the market in terms of something that's very similar to Neuralink. And in my view, is kind of uh, the FDA is leading the way in terms of new technologies. If you look at like CE marking UKC, it's very slow, right? Any, um, any type of new technology that comes out takes like a lot of time to actually get onto the market. And my view is that the FDA is embracing new technologies and I really think the US is going to be leading it in terms of new technologies for the basically medical device industry. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, I, I, I'm personally pretty excited about it just because the fact that Neuralink was able to get uh, the FDA to approve its human trials kind of starts paving a path for other brain computer interface companies or otherwise known as BCI to start doing this. Right. And again, like for Neuralink there, I believe they're looking a lot into movement disorders, but you know, there's so many other areas um, when it comes to brain computer interface. I mean, if you think about addiction, depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorders, you know, the, all these different things. So I think it's really exciting to see this. Um, plus, you know, in my opinion, love, love him or hate him. Um, I think Elon being involved in the space is great because it just brings that much more exposure to space. You know, again, like every other industry, we're competing with the top talent of the world to try and make sure we recruit top talent, you know? And so, so I think it brings a lot of excitement um, to the space. Now, uh, fast forwarding like 10 years from now, does this mean that like uh, whatever Neuralink does could, could, could somebody technically use their 510k, you know, to kind of commercial, you know, get get regulatory approval and commercialize something? Is it that easy? Yes and no. So effectively, when it comes to a 510k, uh, generally you've got to have similar claims, uh, and you've got to have similar intended use. And again, it's kind of like you can't just say that. All right, look, we're exactly the same as Neuralink. We can onto the market. So there's a little bit more to it. But generally speaking, if Neuralink it gets onto the market, you can use it as a 510k. It's going to open the floodgates. 
But generally, when it comes to the 510k pathway, you either are saying that we're exactly the same or we're a little bit less. You can't claim any more, basically, effectively. If you want to claim any more and you want to make any different claims, usually you've got to go down the Danova pathway. Got it. Yeah. And by the way, just for our audience, some of, some of the audiences, you know, they're sort of younger younger professionals in the med tech space, or let's say they're not on the market, marketing or regulatory side. Can you define what a 510k is? Because I, I, you know, I think I mentioned this so many times on the show, and I realize that a lot of people that actually, you know, who listen don't know what a 510k is. So it's, I'll, I'll just say that it's probably the most common way that's that a med tech company gets regulatory approval. But it, if you can kind of dive a little bit deeper on that and explain what a 510k is. Sure. With a 510k, basically what you're saying is that there's already a similar device out on the market that has similar intended use and similar claims to what your medical device currently has. And usually when you have the 510k, it's an expedited um, pathway effectively. With the 510k, the average submission time is basically six months. And a de novo is anywhere from, you know, 12 months plus effectively. So basically, if you can find something similar out on the market and you can prove to the FDA saying, hey, look, this is our device. We've got similar claims. It's very similar to what this product is like. And you can prove that and you have the data to prove it. Effectively, that's what the 510k pathway is. So 510k basically means that there's already an existing device that's very similar to yours already out on the market. That's what the 510k basically is all about. Got it. Yeah, and just, you know, quick note on the BCI space, just because for those who are listening. So, you know, already one thing I wanted to mention is that there are companies in our space, uh, a couple of them. Uh, so BlackRock, Neurotech, and Synchron, they've actually already implanted devices in people for clinical trials. And around, at least I'm looking at my notes, 42 people globally have had brain computer uh, implants. So some of those devices uh, enabled things that, you know, kind of belong to the world of science fiction. So a couple examples, a paralyzed man. Uh, fist bumped uh, President Barack Obama with a robotic hand uh, a while back. A patient with ALS was able to type by thinking the keystrokes. And then a tetraplegic patient was able to manage walking with a slow but natural slide. What makes Neuralink, I think, a little bit different is that they're not only looking to create a device that restores human function, but they're looking to enhance it, which becomes more of like a consumer play. But I don't know. I mean, just from a regulatory pathway, do you feel like that makes it a lot more difficult because they're trying to accomplish like more than just one thing, which is focusing on a pathology, or does it not matter? Yeah, that's the problem when it comes to regulatory. The issue with the regulations, it doesn't keep up with how fast technology is moving. And, you know, if you just want to make one or two claims, that's okay. But yeah. if you want to make like 50 different claims, that becomes much more of an issue because then you've got to have clinical studies, you've got to have human factors, et cetera. And that's what I feel regulations kind of lack at the moment. The fact is technology is moving so fast and regulations are not keeping up with it. That's the issue at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm very hopeful for, for Neuralink. The, my, my one concern is that I've seen, well, both of us have seen so many tech companies from Google to Amazon to, I mean, you name it, who enter the realm of healthcare, but they're tech companies trying to, you know, do business in healthcare versus actually trying to be healthcare companies. And as a result, like they end up accomplishing nothing. <laughs> like, you know, uh, I don't want to pick on them, but like Google's division Verily has raised over a billion dollars. Um, so they're really good at raising money, but I can't think of a single thing that they've technically commercialized. I've seen a lot of press releases and stuff, but like, I don't know. Do you, do you know anything that's come out of Verily that that's, that's like made a huge impact? Not really. I mean, I've been recently following what Neuralink is doing, but in terms of what's going on in the news, it'd be interesting to see. But I haven't, you know, seen any further developments on there. But, you know, the fact is, I'm actually impressed that the Neuralink has actually got through the FDA. 
And I really think that is going to force the pathway for newer technologies out in the industry. And it'll be interesting to see what companies yeah. come up with in the next few years. Absolutely. Well, so that's kind of a good um, like segue into um, a topic I wanted to, to speak to you about. So you, you're based in the United Kingdom. I know that you have clients across the globe and a lot of them have the same, you know, similar commercial pathway, which is, you know, getting regulatory approval in the international markets, say like in Europe, you know, developing some clinical trials, getting some commercial traction, and then having the big commercial launch in the United States. Because in reality, that's the pathway to, you know, great revenue, hopefully an exit in IPO. Europe used to always be seen as a great path to get quick and fast regulatory approval and start, you know, really innovating. But those things have changed. Can you explain like what's happened with the regulatory markets within Europe in the last couple of years and how does that affect innovation? Yeah, effectively. So in the in Europe, we now got the medical device regulation, the new EU MDR. And effectively what's happened is when the EU MDR came in, it put more responsibility on the notified body. So not like the FDA, basically, when it comes to the US, you deal directly with the FDA. So you're dealing directly with effective. When it comes to the EU and the UK, basically, you're dealing with what's known as approved or notified bodies. So these are basically businesses that effectively have permission from the state to basically approve CE marking or UK CA marking for your medical device. Now, what's happened is when the new medical device regulation came out within Europe, it put more responsibility on these notified bodies to the point where some notified bodies say, hey, you know what, this is too much for us. We're backing up. Some notified bodies say, hey, you know, we don't want to do this medical device stuff anymore. Because CE marking is not just medical devices. It could be construction. It could be electronic equipment. It could be anything effectively. Some companies have just decided, hey, you know what, this medical device stuff is too much of a hassle. We don't want to do it anymore. You know, we don't want to do this. And that's basically what's happened. So some companies are backed out. Number two is basically is uh, there's a lot more onus on there and there's a lot more effectively what's become like a two-day audit has now become a four-day audit because there's a lot more responsibilities on these notified bodies. So from what I checked um, actually last night, there's currently only 37 notified bodies that can give you a CE mark. But not every notified body can do every single medical device. Every single notified body has what's known as a scope, which is effectively they have certain devices that they're trained to do. And one factor that's basically been affected is software medical devices. So not every single notified body can do a software medical device. So depending on the device that you have, that number drops more and more. Now, unfortunately, in the EU, if you want to get a notified body audit, it can take anywhere from 12 to 24 months. That's just your initial audit date, not getting your CE mark, just your initial audit date. And then when when you do your submission of your technical file, you generally have three rounds. That can take months and months, possibly even over a year. So that's what's happening. When it comes down to the US and you have a 510K, you can be on the market in six months. So what companies are now realizing is like, you know, is, you know if the EU is going to take this long, let's just go to the US first. And again, uh, the other point of that is, what, is that the US reimbursement system is often a lot more lucrative for medical devices in comparison to the EU. So Omar, just like you touched on to, Generally, the EU was the playground. You go to the EU first, you put your medical device on there, you see how it reacts, and then you come to the US. And what's happened now is due to the EU MDR, the dynamic has now flipped, where companies are saying, hey, you know what, this EU stuff is taking so long, we're going to go US first, and then we're going to go to the EU. So what's happened now is there's been a complete dynamic shift. That's fascinating. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, Karandeep, is that you know, before it used to be that, you know, since you had a faster and easier path to, to approval in Europe, you know, companies would start in Europe, take their time, kind of like, you know, it was almost like um, like a rehearsal 
before having like the big launch in America, because once you're in America, it's, it becomes very, very competitive, right? And now I feel like if companies are going to be going through this new path where it's essentially easier and faster to get through approval in the US, it puts even more emphasis to develop a strong commercial launch plan, right? Both on the sales and marketing side. And unfortunately, a lot of these companies, when they're going through that regulatory approval, they might have like a VP of sales, maybe a VP of marketing, but that's it. They don't have a full team. And so I think it's even more important for them now to really start thinking ahead of time, how to be, you know, sort of quick and nimble to, to, to do a commercial launch. I mean, this is, you know, uh, not, not to sort of, uh, push it, but like this kind of is like one other reason why, like how it validates my thesis that should be using more like digital channels, like LinkedIn, et cetera, which are low in cost, easier to reach more, more users. Right. Um, do you, you know, do you, would you say that like the, the landscape has shifted completely away from the strategy of like, let's start first in the EU and then go over to the United States, or do you still see some companies saying that, Hey, we want to start with Europe first. It's a question for health economics. You know, what's going to sell in the EU and what the demands on the EU are going to be completely different in the US. You know, faster market access is good, but it's not always the best solution for you. So it really depends on what your medical device is doing. It depends on the clinical data that you have, and it depends on the health economics aspect. So even if the EU is going to take two years longer, if your product is going to be like really demanded in the EU, the EU is the one you want to go first. So faster market access isn't always What would better. be an example of something like that, though? What would be an example of something like that, that that would be high in demand in the EU? And how would you find that out? That's a very interesting question. That's for, health, <laughs> that's, uh, that's for people that work in health economics, effectively. So I can't necessarily pinpoint a device. But generally, it's kind of like, uh, again, it comes down to, are there predicate devices in the US for your product? You know, can you get a 510k? If you're coming with something that's completely novel, you know, you're going to be waiting very similar times to the EU. Like I said, if you're going to have to go down the day novel pathway, you're going to be waiting a year plus before your product gets onto the market. So you may as well go EU anyway. It's going to be a very similar timeline. So again, that's another factor as well. You know, are there predicate devices in the in the USA that you can have and do the 510k pathway? If you can't do the 510k pathway, it might be the case that, you know what, let's just go to the EU because it's going to be a similar timeline. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's really interesting, you know, to because I think people forget how much um like the a regulatory pathway adds to a commercial plan, right? Like, you know, I guess in the last couple of years, like, can you think of some examples where a company may have made a mistake or could have done something a little bit different? Like, what, what would your advice be to some of the founders who are listening to this? Because I th again, just choosing where you decide to focus on your regulatory pathway first can be like, I mean, look, if you decide to go the European route, it's fine, but it's going to take longer, but you could, you could run out of money, right? So like, what, what are some of your advice to some of the founders out there with all these changes? My view with the founders is get quality and regulatory in the beginning, right? I don't care how important your product is, how, how life-changing it is, or whatever claims you're going to make. If you can't get regulatory approval, you can't legally get onto the market. That's what founders don't realize. They, you know, they spend so much on marketing. They spend so much on their product and say, oh, look at this. Our product is fantastic. If you can't get regulatory approval, you can't legally sell it. You know, if you can't get regulatory approval, you can't legally sell the product. You're not going to make any money. So that's number one, what you need to do. And then again, it's kind of trying to do quality and regulatory in retrospect is going to cost you way more in terms of time and money to try to do that. So my recommendation is get quality and regulatory people in at the start because they can advise you accordingly. So for example, when I have clients on board and say, hey, Karen, do you want to go for CE marketing? I'm like, guys, you know what? 
I've already found a predicate model, um, predicate device for you in the US. Why don't you go US first, make a little bit of money, and the money that you get, then you can put it into the into the European market effectively or the UK market. So effectively, my view is here is speak to regulatory consultants early on, and they can give you the strategy that will work best for your products. And number two as well is sort of health, health economics as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the reimbursement system in the EU is completely different from the US. So speak to health economists and then they can basically drive your strategy accordingly. Got it. You know, what about other markets? I mean, for, you know, especially if we're looking, if we're looking at clinical data, I mean, India and China both have uh, the first and second largest uh, populations in, in the world. What's your what's your thoughts on the regulatory pathway in those countries? Like, is it tough? Is it easy? Do you recommend it? In my experience, people have told me China is quite tough, but India is actually an untapped market. India is a gold mine at the moment. When I'm speaking to people, okay, but I'm Indian myself, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to necessarily say that it's the best place to go to. But generally, when I'm speaking to people in India because um, India initially recognized everything as drugs. And then around 2018, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone's listening to this, they started to recognize that there was something as medical devices. And India at the moment is starting to recognize that there are medical devices. That generally speaking, if you have a CE mark or an FDA approval, a lot of markets around the world accept that and give you an expedited pathway. So South Africa, as an example, if you have a CE mark, it's much easier to get onto the market in South Africa. Saudi Arabia, if you have an FDA approval, it's much easier to get onto the Saudi Arabian market. So generally companies, if you can get yourself a CE mark, a European approval, and FDA, that generally covers you for a lot of the other places in the world. And that's just basically how it works at the moment. So if you can get yourself a US approval and you can get yourself a European approval, you're pretty much covered for a lot of other places around the world. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think personally, I think India is definitely a very untapped market because aside from, you know, a good regulatory pathway. You have a very large population there. Um, and so, you know, at least from clinical study, like you can get some pretty good data. And because of, you know, there's so many what's called business processing organization or management service organizations, so many of them that are, that are uh, within India, you can have, I think, at least hire out different functions, whether it's like sorting through clinical data or developing SOPs, whatever it might be, that could all be based out of India. So, you know, you could get a lot of clinical data, have some good managed processes, and then do it all like on a very streamlined and like low, low tier budget. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the labor market in India is quite cheap, you know, so for example, like um, what you would pay $100,000 a salary for, for a quality and regulatory person in the US, you can probably hire someone in India for like eight to $10,000. Well, I think, I mean, look, in my opinion, for, for things that are extremely important, like a regulatory quality, a quality consultant, like you should pay top dollar for that, in my opinion, right? You should like the things that are important, you should not like try and be like budget conscious of, but other things like, for example, sifting through clinical data or, or, or things that are just going to be like sort of low, you know, I don't want to call it low tier work, but things that are easily shopped out that anybody can do. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's one country or another, I would say like, look for a place where they're extremely efficient with the work. And it's at a very, very low cost. I mean, India is, is one of the top places. I mean, I'll give you an example. It's, I don't want to say it's exactly the same for med devices, but like, for example, website development, I have a website as a fantastic company of India that manages my website, extremely organized, extremely streamlined, very good about the work and it costs very little money. Right. So like when it comes to the management side and like task, ta- uh, more task oriented stuff. I-, I really love the workforce out of India. 
for things that are more important, like on a strategic side, my thing is like, doesn't matter what country pay top dollar for it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, bang for buck. That's really what it comes down to. You know, you want to look for results. Yeah, exactly. What are, you know, just out of curiosity, I mean, from you, from where you sit on the regulatory and quality side, like what are some, some new areas of med tech that kind of got, have you excited aside from the BCI space? Surgical robotics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Artificial intelligence and machine learning is constantly developing. So regulating that is quite difficult. So generally, when I work with my artificial intelligence and machine learning software-based medical devices, generally what we take is an iterative approach. So effectively, they've got their medical device and they've got their intended use statement. You know, this is what we're going to do. But as that algorithm is constantly learning and getting new information, generally what we do is as it gets that information, we basically have to do substantial changes effectively and then bring that through. The only issue is now with regulations, it doesn't count for the fact that there's algorithms out there that are constantly learning. So whatever intended use and claims that you make is what your device is. If you want to make any changes to that, either you need to make a new submission or you need to submit a substantial change effectively. And generally what I've recommended uh, for medical devices who are in that sort of space, you take the iterative approach, which is, you know, this is what a device is. As we get new information, we get new data, we make a new submission a year later, and then we keep it going from there effectively. But for me, what's most interesting for me is surgical robotics. I am really happy to see the way things are moving. The fact that somebody can sit on the other side of the world and, you know, remotely can do surgeries and things, I just find that absolutely amazing. And the amount of lives that's going to save, because if you've got a, let's just say there's a surgeon that's based in India and there's a surgery happening in the US, that guy's going to have to jump on a plane, he's going to have to wait 15 hours and sadly that patient might die. But if that person can remotely dial in and actually do the surgery, and I've already seen that, so for example, there's a company called Proxime that's already doing this at the moment. I just find that absolutely amazing. And I really think that's going to save a lot of lives around the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the only, I look, I started my career in surgical robotics. I love surgical robots. One thing about surgical robots that people have to keep in mind is just like, it costs a lot of money to take those to market. Like, you know, if you look at uh, Oris, you know, which uh, exited for, I guess, initially $3 billion to J&J, but if they hit like, I think certain milestones, it was going to be something like closer to $5 billion. Oris raised a little over $500 million, right? And so that's the one thing that I say with, with surgical robotics is like, you can have a great surgical robot, but you got to eat as a founder, you better be prepared to raise a lot of money because it it costs a lot of money to take those things to market because just, you know, the hardware and everything in, in, that's in, involved. The one thing I would say is that there's enough surgical robotic platforms out there that the regulatory path seems to be pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, the, the regulatory pathway is not a burden. It, the regulatory pathway exists because we don't want to kill people. And now, unfortunately, a lot of people think that, oh, the regulatory is holding us back. The reason regulations exist, because we want to make safe devices. Now, by all means, go out, create, innovate. We need to make sure that these devices are safe. You know, the last thing you want to do is create a device that's going to cause more problems that's actually trying to solve. Well, you know, on that topic, like, you know, is there something that you see that happens more often than not with founders when it comes to the regulatory quality side that kind of makes things more difficult? Aside, you mentioned that bringing regulatory and quality in, like, early is important, right? Is there anything else that kind of comes to mind when you see these like first time founders, they develop a med device and you're like, oh, you know what? If I went back, I would have told them to do X, Y, Z. Is there anything like that? Yes, especially when it comes to their design control. So they go out and they create this device and then they contact me afterwards after they've created it. But there was no official design control process. There was no design inputs. There was no management reviews. 
there was no documentation of how this device was developed, anything like that. And I'm trying to do that thing in retrospect. And that is actually more difficult than if they actually contacted me from the start. Oh, yeah, that must be a real pain. I was going to say, like, just going to do things in retrospect and going backwards. I mean, uh, by the way, not to put you on the spot, but just out of curiosity, I mean, in, in this space of, uh, like, regulatory and quality management, like, there's different platforms for it. Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with, because I just, you know, I think they do a good job marketing their product, and it seems to be a great platform is Greenlight Guru. I'm wondering, like, what's what's your take on that platform? Do you like theirs? Are there other ones you prefer? Um, what's your, what's your take on this? I know it's kind of controversial, but like, I'm, you know, we got to ask about the tools, right? One thing about Greenlight Guru, and I have to say them, they are fantastic marketers. If people want to learn how to market a product, go and watch Greenlight Guru. They are doing an absolutely fantastic job. Number two with Greenlight Guru is the value that they provide. You know, forget quality management systems, forget regulatory. If you just want to learn what quality and regulatory is all about, the webinars, the, the free resources that they give, you know, anybody who wants to get into the industry, Greenlight Guru is doing a fantastic job. But just like any quality management system out there, you know, there's different ones. It's like vehicles, right? You know, as oh my, you know me, I'm a big car guy, right? You get what's to do the job. Yes. Greenlight Guru is an all-round great thing, right? Now, they may be different. It's like a, like a car, you know. Some cases, you might need a 4 by 4 Some cases, you might need a um, convertible. Some cases, you might need a two-seater. So effectively, I think Greenlight Guru as an all-rounder is very, very good. But there are other systems out there. I've seen very, very simple systems. Uh, I've seen companies that are just using Google Drive. I've seen companies just using SharePoint. I've seen companies using Jira. I've seen companies using the Atlassian-based systems. But yeah, generally, there's so many different systems out there. Go out and work out what works best for you and then take it from there. That's my view. It's a very balanced answer. I like that, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think, I think what's best is just... Um... You know, figure out like what works for you, like early on. But but again, like there are certain things where I don't. My belief is like spend the money where 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 you know you're going to be spending it. You know, so you're better off saying like, okay, if, is regulatory important? The answer is always going to be yes. So you might as well spend the the money upfront early on to get the right advisor involved to use the right tools. Because again, like uh, saving money on that and then trying to go backwards in retrospect just seems like a terrible idea. Um, Currently. Any 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 sort of last 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 words to our audience in terms of how they should think about regulatory and quality, and then more most important, like how can people find you? Because we have a lot of founders and CEOs that listen to the show. Effectively, my view is work out what your product is. Always work with what's known as an intended use statement. So what I mean by that is a lot of companies don't realize what their medical device is. So what do I mean by that? What are your demographics that you're targeting? Are you targeting certain genders? Are you targeting certain age groups? Is it adults? Is it pediatrics? Is there a certain weight class that you're targeting? Certain household conditions, right? Then take it on from there. What are the use cases? Where would this be used? Would this be used in a home setting? Would this be used in a clinical setting, right? Once you've got those answers to those questions, you can then start developing your medical device. And sadly, when I come across a lot of companies, when I say, you know, what is your medical device and what does it do? A lot of companies actually don't know what it is. They're like, hey, you know, we can cure 50 different causes. Like, you know, reality, that doesn't work. Focus on the one to two that you're really, really good at. And then we can take it from there and focus on what your clinical data can represent effectively. So that's number one. And number two is like, oh my, like, I'm not trying to sell my services here, but bring quality and regulatory in at the start because it will save you a lot of money. Because if you start making quality and regulatory mistakes, it will cost you far more in the long run trying to fix things in retrospect than if you just had a professional person at the start that can guide you accordingly and put you in the right direction. No, I completely, like, and I completely agree with you on, on that. Like it is worth doing that early on and doing it, you know, pun intended, 
with high with a high quality quality uh, uh, group. But the other side of it, it's funny you mentioned that about focusing on one or two very specific things. It's the same thing on the marketing side, which is like you can't be something for everybody, and you're way better off being hyper focused, right? Which which if you think of it from a physics standpoint, you know. Focus allows you to have one tip of the spear, which is easier to penetrate with less force. Or in, in this case, you can say the force is marketing dollars. Versus if you try to market a bunch of things to a bunch of people, that tip of the spear becomes to get broader, which means you need a lot more force to penetrate, right? Which takes a lot more money. And so I think that just serves as such great advice, both on the regulatory and marketing side. Uh, Karndeep, I really appreciate you spending time. I mean, kind of want to have you as our sort of regulatory and quality correspondent. But real quick, you know, how can people uh, find you online and engage you if they if they need your help? Yes, yeah, so I'm very, very active on LinkedIn. If people just want to learn about quality and regulatory affairs, you know, follow my content on LinkedIn where I teach people what quality and regulatory is all about and why it's important, et cetera. So, yeah. Generally, the best way to reach me is via LinkedIn and Omar will share my email address with you if anyone's interested in any of my services. Perfect. Karandeep, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, and Karandeep, you know, you're so humble, man. Come on. Like, you got you to gotta shout out your podcast, right? You have a fantastic podcast. What's, <laughs> what's the name of your podcast and where can people yeah, find so it? It's called the MedTech Podcast and Omar was episode number four. So he was one of the, the early guests onto the show. So, yeah, it's, I interview people in different medical technologies because it's an area that I'm passionate about. And likewise, if there's anyone listening here today who's got something very interesting in medtech and wants to come on the show, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Absolutely, yeah. And I had a lot of fun. You're a very good interview, and it's a great podcast. So yeah, if you're a founder, or you're you know, you're you're exec, you got an interesting story, just reach out to Karndeep. So well, that being said, thank you so much, Karndeep, for coming on the show. For those who are listening, check the show notes below. I'm going to leave some resources in there, including uh, Karndeep's profile. This has been another episode of the State of Medtech, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of The State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care and we'll see you next time.